Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Today's episode of Real Talk with Zuby is brought to you by our sponsors, OZ Lifestyle Brands. OZ Lifestyle Brands care a lot about the details. Their selection of men's accessories balance style with substance and quality and craftsmanship, showcasing both casual and classic designs. They also make shopping really easy for you. You can just go check out their website, ozlifestylebrands.com. They've got a fantastic selection of watches, wallets, t-shirts, and other accessories especially designed for men with ultra-discerning tastes. OZ is for men who have found their calling but don't feel the need to shout about it. So I recommend you go check out their full range of products over at ozlifestylebrands.com. To let them know that I sent you and to get 20% off your entire first order, just use the code ZUBYMUSIC at checkout. That is ZUBYMUSIC, Z-U-B-Y MUSIC at checkout to get 20% off your entire order at ozlifestylebrands.com. ozlifestylebrands.com, go check them out. What's up, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls around the world? I would like to welcome you back to the Real Talk with Zuby podcast. On today's episode, we've got on a very fascinating guest with a very brilliant and interesting mind. This is evolutionary biologist Colin Wright. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Zuby. Appreciate You're most it. welcome, man. How's everything going? You good? Everything's going pretty well so far. Just in a job application season, submitting maybe about 20 jobs so far, and I got at least that many to go uh, until the year's over. So, Okay. What kind of stuff are you looking for? What kind of work uh, does an evolutionary biologist do these days? Yeah. So, I mean, I study social behavior in, in ants, wasps, and social spiders. So I'm basically applying to any type of postdoctoral position or uh, some sort of tenure track position somewhere, or even just teaching only uh, jobs at universities or, uh, I guess, sort of a liberal arts college type type place. Basically, in, when you're in academia, you don't get to choose where you work. You There's so many jobs that go on the market, and you get about 500 applications for each job. And so if you were to get an offer somewhere, you basically just take it. So, okay. so we'll see. I could be anywhere in the world next year. <laughs> okay. So tell us a little bit more about your work and what you specialize in then. Yeah, so I, I study, uh, well, I guess I'm more specifically, I'm an evolutionary behavioral ecologist. So I study uh, animal personalities. So it kind of, it's kind of what you might expect. So a personality is just uh, consistent differences between individuals and the way that they behave over time. And so I study this in animals and more specifically in like, uh, social insects or arachnids. So just like, you know, you have dogs and cats, you know that no two dog behaves the same way. Same with humans. No two human behaves the same way. They might be more aggressive or more docile or more sociable or more kind of, you know, isolated. Uh, and not just our pets and humans have these traits. It's also a trait of, of wild animals too. And so basically I'll be looking at like a big colony of spiders or wasps or ants and I'll quantify 
the personality distribution like within these colonies, like how similarly do all the individuals behave uh, compared to one another. And then I use these uh, individual differences in their behavior to look at how these uh, produce sort of colony level behaviors, uh, collective behaviors, and how that relates to outcomes like survival and uh, building their nests and capturing prey and things like that. Okay. That's, that's very, very specific. So um, <laughs> yeah, I've, got, <laughs> I've got, I've got two questions. So I'll, I'll start with the first one off the bat, which is how did you get into this? Yeah. So I've always been one of those kids that was interested in sort of messing with, with ants in the, in my backyard. You know, I wasn't very kind to them as a kid, but, uh, as I grew older, it became more of just like an intellectual fascination. I, I read a lot of E.O. Wilson and uh, other people that were just, you know, talking about the social social insects and how they how they behave. You weren't using a magnifying glass on them, were you? Yeah, I was definitely. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> there was this fence in my backyard, and there was like <laughs> these black ants on the top, and then there was a line of these red ants that were going, and I would just like put a stick between there, and then just like they would connect, and I would just watch like the, the carnage. And like, <laughs> that was... Yeah, and in a way, I still do similar stuff. I mean, I, I'll do experiments in, in South Africa where I'm looking at how the ants are preying upon the social spider colonies. Mm -hmm. And so it's basically just sort of like this, these Lord of the Rings battles between spiders and ants. And it's, it's pretty brutal, but it's pretty okay. fun to watch. Yeah, no, I remember, um, I, don't, I don't think I ever really did it myself, but I do certainly remember uh, growing up in the Middle East and Saudi Arabia, obviously, where you've got super intensely hot sun. And so people would do the thing with the magnifying glass where you, you concentrate, oh, yeah. you concentrate the thing. And yeah, that would, uh, yeah, people used to just sort of set these insects <laughs> and stuff on fire, which was, uh, probably a little bit mean in hindsight, but boys, yeah. boys I guess. All done that. <laughs> All been there. <laughs> yeah. So then I was, so that was my sort of early fascination. And then as I got to, um, undergrad, I knew I wanted to study evolution, but I wasn't sure I was kind of leaning towards maybe I get into paleo, maybe I'll. Um, go into sort of a molecular evolution type thing. And then I took an animal behavior class and that just sealed the deal for me because it was the most fascinating class I've ever taken. Just the way you can quantify animal behaviors and look at how behaviors evolve over time and the selection pressures that shape different behaviors. And then social behavior was just like the most complex and intricate of all the behaviors you have. And so uh, just the, the way that these colonies are able to orchestrate and divide labor up among sometimes millions of individuals it just blew me away. And so I realized that's something I wanted to study. And I never thought I'd get into studying social spiders. But when I was Googling professional uh, special places where I might go to grad school, uh, this just sort of came up on you know, a few pages back on the Google search. Someone was looking for a, a graduate student and they specifically studied social spiders. So I, I sent okay. an application and I, I got it. And it's been history. <laughs> when I think of spiders, I don't really think of them being social animals like when you talk about ants wasps bees obviously i know they're in you know they have hives colonies and they kind of do their thing in that regard but i always think of spiders as being quite solitary creatures yeah, Am yeah I, they, uh, they almost always there? are okay yeah most spiders so you like you'll look at the orb weavers they're just sitting in the middle of their web they're by themselves almost the only social interactions most spiders have is when when they're immediately born and they have a bunch of offspring around them, mm -hmm. uh, or when they're in a mating context where they need to at least interact with one other spider of opposite sex, but that usually doesn't turn out well. Like sometimes they'll, they'll either, they'll either mate nicely or the mate will get, the male will get cannibalized before they even mate sometimes. Mm -hmm. Uh, but only maybe I think 25 to 30 species of spider 
Oh, that's, first, how's that for male privilege? Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So there's there's thousands of species of spiders, but only about 25 to 30 are social in any long period of time. Uh, so the ones that I study, there's just a few. There's a few social species that are in uh, sort of the southern Africa region, uh, and those are the ones I study. There's also some in the U.S. and all around the world as well. But uh, they're pretty neat. They're they're not like ants, bees, and wasps in the sense that social spiders don't have a queen. Uh, so they're all basically, I don't want to say they're all equals because there are some individuals that are more influential than others, but uh, they're more or less the same body type and they cooperate on all sorts of, uh, sorts of behaviors in their colonies. Yeah. How do you actually study that? Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> so you want to pick behaviors that are really sort of easy to to record so when we study you know if you study like human personality like a lot of psychologists do you know you can give people a, a, a survey you can have them fill out a form and you can get an idea of of their personalities but with animals since they can't fill out surveys you can't ask them things you have to look at things that are sort of more more obvious so you might put them in a situation uh, that they've never been in where they have to interact with sort of like a novel object in their environment and this is sort of a measurement of what's called neophobia or or boldness. So it's like the propensity of an individual to sort of engage in a risky behavior. And if there's a new object in their environment they've never seen before, you know, if, if they're if they're active around it or if they're investigating it readily, you know, they're they're more risk prone than if you have some individual that maybe like shies away from this thing and won't even go near it. So we can measure things like uh, boldness. So how long does it take for them to interact with a certain novel object? or to enter a new, uh, a new environment, basically. Mm-hmm. You can look at things like exploration, how, how, how thoroughly do they explore their environments. Uh, Sorry, you can put is, them, this, is this done in the natural habitat, or is this in a sort of lab setting? It can be done in both, okay. yeah. Um, usually, I do them in the lab setting. I have, done, I have done them both in the lab and field. Okay. Uh, and then things like aggressiveness that are pretty straightforward to measure. Like, you can quantify, you know, if I'm going to, you know, antagonize this individual 10 times and I'm going to see how many times they try to attack the the prod back or something. And so mm-hmm. you do this more than once. You'll do that maybe uh, four or five, six, seven times. And then you can sort of get an idea of how consistent they are across different trials and their personalities and then how different uh, how different they are compared to others in whatever trait you're trying to measure. Okay. And then my, my next big question I was going to ask is what's the point of it? I mean, what's the what's the goal to like what what do you want to glean, not just you specifically, but the, the wider field of study by looking into the behaviors of whether it's ants or wasps or social spiders? What are the goals, I guess, yeah. of that field of study? So a lot of it is constructing sort of models of what's possible biologically um, given different personality distributions. So. Uh, we've had labs where um, we've been trying to make machines be able to to learn which individuals are most influential, say, in like a group context based on their personalities, and then get computers to be able to predict, uh, you know, which individual is the most influential by showing them sort of repeated trials of these, these behaviors that we're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so right now it's sort of constructing models of, of what's possible, but there's ideas that you could look at, um, for instance in certain like riot scenarios where you have a bunch of individuals that are, you know, that are rioting in a street and you'll have some individuals that are going to be more influential or being like more leaders than others. 
And could you create some kind of computer learning that's, gonna, that's able to sort of identify these specific behaviors of, of individuals that you, you know, it might not be able to see by like standing back and looking at a crowd, mm-hmm. but a computer trained in knowing what to look for, could it identify those influential individuals? Uh, and also in- Why, in, why does this scare me? <laughs> it could, I mean, there, there was, uh, <laughs> there was a, uh, I'm not a rioter, I'm not a rioter. But. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> My previous lab had a grant for the Department of Defense that was sort of along those lines. Okay. Um, but in, in general, it's sort of an exploratory look at what's what's possible given um, different personality distributions. We have it's it's being used in in human psychology as well. So in in, in corporate America, when you're trying to have build certain teams uh, to achieve a certain goal, you know you don't want a whole team that's full of a bunch of really aggressive hotheads. Uh, there actually turns out to be that there's an optimal sort of mix of personality types that you'd want in a certain setting that will actually achieve a better, more efficient goal than if you had sort of a, a you know, one group that's completely homogenous with a certain type of behavior. So uh, it's, it's useful in human context as well. In an ecological context, what I study in, it's, you know, looking how, how an, an organism is going to be able to survive, how it might, um, how climate change might affect the, the distribution of these animals, what personalities and collective behaviors are being selected in different environments and how might climate change affect that or, or something. So there's all kinds of uh, spin-off related yeah. science that can, that can relate to it. And how relevant or how similar are different species in this regard? So can you look at ants and wasps and spiders and humans and rats and elephants and are there yeah. very common patterns amongst them? There are. So yeah, a lot of, one big pattern that we tend to see emerge in labs is that aggressiveness looks like it's it does really really well in laboratory settings and then sometimes in short short term settings in the field too really aggressive colonies of spiders for instance tend to really dominate all those around them they're really good at defending their colonies and they're uh good at catching prey for instance Mm -hmm. but usually there seems to be this big trade-off between being a really aggressive and then more long-term long-term goals so for instance you can have a, a really aggressive spider colony and it might might kick butt, you know, capturing prey and defending their colony. But they're like, they're so aggressive that their aggression sort of spills over in other contexts where it's not good to be aggressive, like mm-hmm. trying to rear offspring. We tend to see these spiders are more, if you're an aggressive spider, you're more likely to, to cannibalize your young, for instance. Mm-hmm. Or if you're a really aggressive ant, you're really active. Uh, it's really good for bringing in lots of food but on really hot days these aggressive colonies tend not to be able to to rein in how aggressive they are and so they'll have too many workers outside when it's really hot that increases the mortality of all their foragers basically so there's this a very there's definitely like a, a context specific trade-off you see between a lot of different behaviors okay. uh, and that seems to be a pretty pretty common signal within a lot of systems but there's also issues of you know if i test boldness or aggressive in an ant how comparable is that to testing aggressiveness in a bird or something like that? Or that's not even yeah. the same neural pathways. Uh, so it's just sort of these coarse looks at, at these certain types of behaviors. Yeah. Is there anything that's, what's the thing that's blown your mind most since you've been studying this? Yeah. So we have, so in my, the spiders that I study, they're, so these South African desert spiders, Stegodiphus demicola, that's their, their genus and species. Uh, they have what's known as keystone individuals in this group. 
Mm-hmm. So a keystone individual is just certain a certain individual that has a disproportionate influence on group dynamics uh, relative to how abundant these individuals are within a group. So uh, like a queen of an ant colony, that's a highly influential individual that's you know has more influence than just any single worker. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in my spider colonies, you can have these single really highly bold individuals, these risk prone spiders. And if you have a whole colony of really risk-averse spiders, they're just like the, the shyest spiders, is what we call them. If you add just a single really bold individual to the group, it will increase the overall group boldness by mm. 400%. They'll attack prey much faster. There's like this leader-follower dynamic in some of these populations where okay. you can just put this influential spider in there. And they're, they're like these trend-setting spiders. And they just – sometimes they say people, but these other spiders, they'll just – sort of follow their lead. And so uh, we're looking at how how this has evolved and what context might this not not do well. And, uh, you know, there's trade-offs where if you train like one of the keystones uh, to respond to stimuli that are, that are maybe it's like bad information and you put them in a colony, well, then the colony is going to rely on this individual that's basically been given false information about the nature of reality. And those colonies tend to to not do well. So we can manipulate the keystones and then that just nip, manipulating one individual can manipulate the behavior of the entire group. Okay. And just, and th- th- this, this definitely leads into human psychology for sure. Yeah. Yeah. We, that, we, always, sounds... we always look at, yeah. Every time we talk about bold spiders being highly influential, we always like yeah. look at like Donald Trump. He's like a bold spider. <laughs> That's what he's doing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, I recently read an, not an article, but um, there was a thread you sent me on Twitter about the un- what you call the univariate fallacy, which yeah. is something that you've noticed both in academia and outside of it. So can you explain to the, our listeners what um, what that's all about and how you've seen that manifest, what it is, what the downfalls are, yeah. and how to address it? Yeah, I'm, I'm sure you've seen some of the similar rhetoric given that you've interacted with trans activists to some degree by doing your, your deadlift and all that stuff. And we tend they, to see, they all block me. <laughs> yeah, they block me too. Okay. Uh, we t- but you'll, you'll tend to hear that biological sex is a spectrum. Like that's something you might have heard from these activists or that, you know, there's sex isn't binary. And that might be the, the Trojan horse. They'll say like, you know, sex isn't binary. Uh, there's some articles you can see in, in, Things like Scientific American will say, you know, there's there's up to like nine sexes, and they'll they'll be categorizing sexes based on just like different chromosomal arrangements or something. Um, but I mean, the take home is that you'll hear a lot of people say sex is a spectrum that there's not just male and female, but there's just like this broad spectrum in between, and and there's nothing that's really defining of a male or female uh, in essence. Like there's no single factor that you can just drill down on that will unassailably categorize this individual as being male or this individual as being female. You know, you'll, you'll penis. <laughs> see, like, exactly. So you'll, say, <laughs> you'll say, do you have a penis? And they'll just be like, well, is that the only thing? Cause some of these individuals can have like enlarged, you know, an enlarged clitoris or something, or, you know, in the case of Castor Semenya, they'll say that, you know, this is a female, even though they have XY chromosomes, uh, they're they're genetically male, but since they have a vagina, they'll say that it's that, you know they'll they'll win to classify her as being female, and because they'll say that uh, you know the, the vagina maybe is the one thing that 
that trumps everything else. Uh, and so the fallacy, basically, the, the univariate fallacy is this claim that if you cannot distill any differences between these proposed groups down to a single factor, that these groups are then social constructs or don't represent natural categories in nature. So it's hard to say, like, is it just chromosomes that determine sex because you can have XX individuals that still have this male determining gene on their one of their X chromosomes will they look completely male or you can have XY individuals who aren't sensitive to androgens and they, they look exactly like any female would. Uh, so they'll, they'll basically just try to debunk every single little mechanism to try to just like say that these categories don't exist. So basically take, take very rare exceptions and outliers and try to use yeah. that to disprove the general rule. Yes. Yeah. So in, in reality, when you look at just sort of, you know, at, at birth, about 99.98% and more of individuals are just unambiguously male or female. They can be placed into these, these separate categories. There are certain, you know, less than 0.02% of the population that will fall into this, you know, this gray area that's, you know, a, a phenotypic gray area. So these so-called intersex individuals, mm -hmm. but all these individuals a big misconception about these intersex categories is that intersex intersex people are maybe like a third sex or that they don't have a biological sex, when in reality, intersex conditions are sex-specific conditions. So even if you're intersex, you still have a biological sex. It's just might be ambiguous or there might be a mismatch between your genetic sex and the way you appear. Mm, so yeah. uh, the univariate fallacy is it's used not just in trying to, to debunk sort of the the sex binary in humans, but you also see it in places like people trying to say that there's no no differences between males and females in uh, personality or uh, in in the way our brains are structured. Mm. And you know, if you were to look at any single variable, like how much white matter do these brains have, or something, or how uh, how aggressive are you, you know, you might be able to say like you know, if you're if you're just looking at someone and you're going to say. I want to try to predict someone's sex just by knowing how aggressive a person is. You know, you're not going to be able to be that, you know, that high of precision. You might guess mm -hmm. maybe 70% of the time or something. Mm -hmm. But if you were to then use something like, well, I want to know how aggressive they are. I want to know uh, how agreeable they are. And if you go down the whole big five personality uh, tests, then what you'll see is that you can actually create models that can predict an individual sex, you know, 95% or more just on yeah. a survey. And that's because the differences aren't on any single axis like uh, sociability or how agreeable you are, but it's how that these traits are correlated with other traits that you have. So there's mm -hmm. sort of these suites of correlated traits or, or sort of behavioral or personality syndromes that will classify these two distributions of male or female. Real Talk with Zuby is sponsored by Gumroad.com. Gumroad is a platform that makes it really, really easy for creators of all kinds to sell their products, both digital and physical. It's what I've been using for my latest book, Strong Advice, Zuby's Guide to Fitness for Everybody. Gumroad makes it really quick, seamless, intuitive, and easy to sell whatever it is that you want. You can get started in just a few minutes by going to gumroad.com, signing up as a creator, and setting up your product. Did I mention that it's free to use? It makes it really quick and easy for you to set up and sell your products and get paid every single week, and it also makes it really easy for buyers to pay you with credit card, debit card, PayPal, various payment methods. 
It works well on mobile as well as on desktop. So I highly recommend you go check them out, whether you are an artist, a podcaster, a creator, a musician, whatever it is that you do, check out gumroad.com. That is G-U-M-R-O-A-D.com and get started today. Gumroad.com. So those are probably the main places that you'll see the univariate fallacy being said. So you'll see people like Cordelia Fine or something will say that, you know, it's because, you know, they can point to a female that's been that's really aggressive or more aggressive than most men. Then all of a sudden there's nothing you can't make any claims about aggressiveness related to to sex or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, just because you can't you can find an outlier in one dimension doesn't mean that you can't correlate these all. And make a highly predictive model that can and, and obviously with any of those traits once you go to the extreme ends on them you get massive clustering of yeah, yeah. you know if you go all the way to the end of the okay let's just look at the five percent of most aggressive people you're going to get i don't know 95 percent of them are going to be male if you look at the mm-hmm. bottom five percent of of aggressive people or the top five percent of most agreeable people or the top five percent of most neurotic people you're going to end up with almost all women just because exactly. of the way, you know, the way the bell curves sort of line up. Yeah. Um, I've got a, I've got a couple of questions. I mean, the first one is why has this become a thing recently? Right. Like, question. like what's the agenda here? What do you think? I mean, what's, what's the goal? Why are people suddenly, I mean, it seems pretty sudden. Uh, I mean, 10 years ago, if you said there's two sexes or two genders, nobody, everyone would be like, yeah, duh. you know, even, even seven years ago, but it seems like in the past five years, we're, we're suddenly, well, in the, in the Western world anyway, not, not everywhere else, um, people are suddenly questioning and challenging this idea of men and women. I mean, it, it's weird to me because lots of these things cancel, cancel out. So people are saying there's no difference between a male brain and a female brain, mm-hmm. but men and women are different, but they're the same and you can switch between them. And I'm like, wait, which ones of these are you saying are true? Because not all like this, what you're saying isn't making sense here, right? Because yeah. you're, you're saying that, I don't know, gender, gender is what you feel, but then men have these advantages that women don't, or women have these advantages that men don't, but those same people can't define the word man and the man and the word woman, right? To me, the, this is almost like the most basic thing. Like, like there are certain things in life that are just self-evident. I find it almost weird that I'm here you know, if I'm, if I'm seeing some of these conversations online and I'm seeing evolutionary biologists and evolutionary psychologists and, you know, all these high powered brains, you know, having to throw all this academia and studies and whatnot yeah. to explain something that my two year old nephew <laughs> yeah. under, understands. You see what I mean? Like it, yeah. it just strikes me as weird because people are throwing out all this stuff and I'm just like, I don't know. I, I feel like there are some things that are almost so self-evident that I, I don't know if I can prove that your T-shirt is a dark red. Right. But mm-hmm. I, I, I can just see it is if someone was like, oh, well, what's your proof? Uh, maybe there's some something I could use, some sort of tool I can use to prove. But yeah. I just be like, well, it, it just is just like your. Don't you know that color red is a social construct? Like I've had people. Yeah, talk about. yeah that, that's the thing. It's like, I don't know how far people want to go. But uh, yeah, but coming back to the question, I mean, what do you think the goal is here? Yeah, so I've, I've messaged, I've sent out tweets before that that said that, you know, because I want to be a professor. That's that's my, that's my sure. goal. That's what I'm applying to. And, you know, I'll, when I'm teaching a class, you know, I'll be teaching people about genetics and, you know, about my field of behavioral ecology and just like the, I'll be teaching people about the frontier of, you know, 
ant colony dynamics and what we know about social behavior and, and ecology and community dynamics and all this stuff. And it just seems so bizarre that like this is what they want me to teach in university. But I'll, at the same time, I'll, I'll know that a, a healthy subset of people in my class will somehow be unaware of the existence of males and females as discrete categories. So it's just like I, I find myself going back to having like these birds and the bees talks with adults sometimes in their 40s or, or later who seem to just not know this basic fact about, you know, the biology that you'd think you'd just pick up just by having two, two eyes and a functioning brain yeah. uh, that males and females exist. But do, so, do, they, do they really not know or are they unclear. almost acting like they don't know? Because one of the weirdest things I find with this whole thing is that it seems like this really strange cognitive dissonance where on a day-to-day -day basis, I mean, for example, if we're going to talk about the idea of assuming somebody's gender, everybody yeah. assumes people's gender all the time, right? An outsider, even someone who's really into this ideology would see us two having this conversation and go, that's, that's two men talking. You yeah. see what I mean, right? And they'd automatically refer to, uh, Zuby said this, he said this, right? They, so, and then they'll go away and they'll say, oh, you need to ask people's pronouns and you can't make these. And it's like every single day, just by yeah. default, we're all, I mean, you walk down the street, man, woman, woman, man, man, woman, like yeah. everybody, everybody does that. It's, it's so, it's such a basic thing. So yeah. I find it weird that people are saying, oh, you can't tell the difference or there's no difference or it's not a binary thing. But in, in real life, everybody yeah. does actually treat it as a binary and yeah, so in the, yeah the, the vast majority of people, when they say that, you know, they're looking at us and they say they're, these are two men talking, what they mean by the word man is adult human male. Yeah. And that's the sex is usually baked into that, that whole what it means to be a man. It's only recently how this it's been changed, where man no longer reflects adult human male. And now it reflects just sort of this like innate sense of maleness, which is itself meaningless because maleness can then be anything or, you know, manliness or masculinity, uh, you know, just it, it ultimately boils down to just like masculine stereotypes uh, at that point. And so that's, that's this other thing. Um, you asked initially about, you know, where did this, how did this whole ideology come from and start in this uh, people willing to just like blow up these binaries? I think a lot of it's just sort of a misplaced empathy or this drive for wanting equality, but their approach is just like completely backwards. So they, in the sense that they they want everyone to be equal, and rather than saying that you know embrace everyone's the, the diversity that we see among everybody, not everyone's going to have the same abilities. You know, some people are going to be more intelligent, less intelligent. Some people are going to be more physically attractive, less. Rather than just like a commitment to treating everyone the same and giving them you know universal human rights and dignity. Instead, they sort of invert that and they, they say that they try to get rid of any physical differences or they try to deny that any differences exist to make everyone equal. So they, they try to just deny reality so that everyone is the same. But then, they promote, yeah. but then those same people say they want diversity, right? That they want to embrace diversity, yeah. So it's it really doesn't make any sense Yeah. because in a, in a way they're saying that they, there's this assumption that they're making that well, if these differences were real, then there would be a basis for discrimination. Mm. When that's not the route we want to go, like we don't want discrimination to be based on finding actual real differences. 
we want to say like no in a you know in a society where we respect the dignity and human rights of everyone people can be different and they shouldn't be treated differently there everyone should have the same rights mm -hmm. and that you know discrimination shouldn't be based on the differences that we find uh so in a way their their worldview i think is is the most dangerous because it's capable of just being well blown apart by any finding within the sciences that do show differences exist. That's why when you get somebody um, studying human personality or intelligence researchers or something, and they'll find, you know, uh, some some disparity between groups on, on anything, they want to say that that's complete socialization, or they'll say, you know, this is, this is, this is nothing but sexism. Uh, but even though, like, we can say that these differences exist, yeah. And that doesn't mean I'm a sexist, you know, like no, I will no, no. say that males are more aggressive than females. I don't know if, how good a thing that is. Like, is it good that males, you know, have, commit 95 percent of all the homicides? Yeah. Like, I mean, I, I often I say that, you know, I often say that to I mean, to a large degree, the reason why so many men start companies in proportion to women or rise to certain ranks within companies or organizations is largely the same reason why the vast majority of people in prison are men. It's the same, it's the same yeah. dimension for the most part. It's the same yeah. traits. It just depends on how they're, how they're honed and how they're harnessed, right? It can be in a very, you can channel aggression in an extremely positive way. Aggression and competition can yeah. be great, but they can also be very, very destructive, especially if mm -hmm. you couple them with, you know, any sort of sociopathic tendencies or someone who yeah. just wants to commit evil. But I don't know, it, it's, yeah. it's just... It's kind of yeah. It's very much the same thing. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's one of those things I've been I've been sort of mulling over quite a lot for the past couple of years, especially as things just get weirder and yeah, weirder and weirder. I, I'm just kind of you know it's getting harder to tell what's real and what's a parody. Even right, I'll see yeah. something on Twitter. I'll be like, is this someone trolling <laughs> or yeah, is yeah. this what someone really believes? Um, no, I've, I've mentioned before that. I've never simultaneously felt like more sane and also like I might be losing my mind. Like it's a weird feeling where I feel both, both to the, the maximum degree at the same time. It's just like, I feel insane because I look around me and I see so much insanity and I've, I've never asked myself so many times in like a year, like, am I the crazy one? Like I, I constantly ask myself that because <laughs> I see people with PhDs that are saying that like, you know, like Sally Hines in the UK, who will say that, you know, the female skeleton didn't exist until the Enlightenment. It's like, what are you talking about here? Wait, what? What, what does that even mean? Huh? <laughs> and in there's in there and they're saying with a straight face to their hundreds of thousands of followers. What, what, what what's that even supposed to mean? <laughs> I, don't, I have no idea. It's uh, I don't know. I mean, you'll get them saying that, you know, sex wasn't was constructed by Enlightenment thinkers, that these mm. weren't categories that people even identified before then these are just they were just socially constructed out of some weird background but yeah it's completely it's complete madness like we weren't able to tell males and females you know before the enlightenment like when we were people were having children and people were you know we all obviously could correlate the fact that people who you know had vaginas or like innies or whatever like they had mm. the children and they tended to behave more similarly this way it's, it's, yeah, it's just, yeah. it's completely mad. It's uh, weird. It's like a lot of these ideas, I feel like they're so stupid that only pretty smart people could have concocted them. Yeah. Right? When I hear, when I hear some of these of ideas, like, yeah, it's like, if you, t it's like, if you talk to, I don't know, just an, 
completely average intelligence or even sort of you know, slightly below average intelligence person, right? In some ways, it's almost like they're smarter than some of the people who are pushing yeah. this stuff because yeah. it's like, okay, they don't have all this education. They might not have the degrees or the, but they they exist in reality. It so seems like, you, yeah. yeah, it seems like there's this threshold that you'll reach in certain fields that you know, not so much. I'd say the 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 harder sciences, um, but in more of the social sciences, you'll you'll get so far from from reality. So like you, you obviously like in the sciences, if your experiment doesn't work, then it's it's not real. Like you didn't need the results not there. Like you're gonna be constantly checked by reality. If you do a physics experiment and you predict the light's gonna bend a certain way and it bends the opposite way, like, well, your hypothesis was wrong back to the drawing board. But a lot of these other fields, they might start, you know, early on from a place where they're, you know, actually maybe gathering data on on humans and personalities and relating it to things, but there becomes sort of this point, this threshold that they go through where they, they sort of leave empiricism behind and they just enter into a world that's nothing but theory, mm -hmm. the capital T. And then, and then they'll just get so involved in the, the, the theory that this then is how it becomes a lens with how they then look back and, and observe reality. And when they see that, you know, the equivalent of the light bending the other way, they don't, instead of saying that, like, maybe my theory is wrong, they just, like, a lot of times their theory will have this circular component in it mm -hmm. where, like, it reinforces the theory itself. The light is racist. Yeah, you'll get, like, white, <laughs> yeah. So, for instance, you'll get, like, white fragility theory of uh, Robin D'Angelo, and this has a built-in function where, like, white fragility is if if you're, if you question white fragility, mm -hmm. if you're skeptical of it, if you get uh, angry when someone like does it like that's just more evidence of it you know it's yeah. like this Kafka trap where it's just like it's a completely it's a, it's a theory with a closed loop that you just can't you can never get out and then you just keep going faster and faster through this loop the more the more you drill down and this is this is not how knowledge is produced if you can't have any way to falsify your theory yeah and in fact any attempt to falsify it is now evidence for its validation yeah. this is not knowledge this is this is completely just separate entirely from knowledge it's not another way of knowing it's just it's just wrong yeah i mean do you really think these people have good intentions because that's something that i initially thought a few years ago but i'm really starting to doubt that idea that lots of this stuff is stemming from good intentions because some of it is going so far that i'm like no one in their right mind who's genuinely a kind and compassionate person who kind of wants the best for everybody. I I don't think you'd be pushing some of these some of these ideas. I mean, taking a really obvious one. Um, of course, I had my my deadlift video, which went viral a few months ago, where obviously, I, you know, I, I stepped up and broke the women's uh, women's British records to make a point. Um, but, you know, taking something like that, like having biologically male athletes competing against biological females technically men competing against women in sport, especially if you're talking about a contact sport or you're talking, you know, something like, I don't know, boxing, rugby, American football, you know, uh, MMA. I mean, anyone, it just seems like anyone with the right, just any normal person would just go, no, like, no, that's not fair. You know, I don't, you don't, you again, you don't need to be a scientist. We yeah. all, we all know, like society forever has known that on average, 
men are physically bigger, stronger, faster than women. It's the reason you separate the sports to begin with. So it it strikes me as alarming that, you know, you've got people kind of allowing this to happen or pushing for it to happen under the guise of compassion or inclusivity or fairness. And I I mean, it's, it's the complete, it's the complete opposite. You're having the whole, um, the whole wax my balls, <laughs> the, the whole, the whole ball, ball waxing thing where, you, where you've got, um, you know, a biological man claiming to be a woman and going around and shutting down female run businesses oh, yeah. for refusing to wax their male genitalia. I mean, it, it sounds, it almost sounds like a parody, right? Like if you told someone about this oh, 10 yeah. years ago, you'd be like, dude, what are you, what are you talking about? You go back yeah. to 2009 and say, okay, man, in two, in 2019, this is what everyone be like, dude, come on, like, yeah. come off it. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a South Park episode at this point. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So that's why I'm starting. That's why I think I'm like, no, these people don't have good intentions. Like you can't have good intentions and be wanting s- some of these things to happen. I mean, yeah. it doesn't it doesn't make sense to me anymore. I, I think at least most of them do and have good intentions. I, I have a lot of pretty far left friends that I interact with on Facebook. I tend not to post on Facebook too much anymore because when I have, I've lost like long-term friends that I've had since kindergarten because of me speaking out on this stuff. And I just, I don't want to, you know, lose some of these old friends in that way. So I just, and so see, that, post- that, that in itself doesn't, I mean, I'm, I'm not, I don't want to diss your friends at all, yeah, but yeah. that in itself doesn't strike me as the way, like, uh, again, someone who claims to be yeah. tolerant, kind and compassionate and whatnot. Yeah. Would, well, I'd say that there's, mean, it, I don't. Yeah, I, I still have a lot that are that you know haven't disowned me as a friend, and I know that they're. I, I, I've known them for a long time, and I know that yeah, they're yeah. they're good, compassionate people. Okay. Um, I do think there are people that are they're just leeching off of off of these movements to you know for virtue signaling purposes or whatever. Like I think it's it's unclear whether Jessica Yanev Yaniv Ballwaxer person is is being honest and I don't think they care. I think they're just narcissistic and they're just trying to get anything they can out of it yeah. in general. But I, I do think most of the people, um, I try not to assume people's motives, but yeah, I, think, same. I think a lot of them do have compassion. I think it's just this idea of intersectionality is sort of where things go haywire mm. because when you are constructing these hierarchies of, of oppression, trans people are in, in this hierarchy are beneath that of biological women. And so to them, that doesn't even, it doesn't matter that they could potentially destroy female sports or what they would say, women's sports and women's sports need to have women and trans women are women. <laughs> you know, they go down that whole pathway. Yeah. I just, I, I don't understand how they, cause I, I have had like a discussion with someone on Facebook and they were just trying to say that, you know, like, well, no, the number one predictor of athletic ability is, is, you know, coaches growing up. And if you have the best coaches and I'm just trying to instill to them, like, well, no, this, that might like, good coaching maybe might be a really good predictor within each sex, mm-hmm. but certainly not between the sexes. Like the no amount of coaching is going to create, is going to make a better athlete of this, you know, mediocre female compared to. Like, yeah. Yeah. A decent male athlete. The weirdest thing with the sport one as well, though, is that there's not even an overlap. If you take the top tier athletes of almost any sport, barring maybe like two or three exceptions, like long distance swimming and gymnastics, maybe, you know, certain types of gymnastics or ballroom dancing or ice skating, right? Mm-hmm. Like the top 
10,000 people. Not, okay. not, not even the top 100, right? The top 10,000, maybe the top 50,000 in, I don't know, say sprinting, weightlifting, um, you know, any throwing event, any swimming, like they're all men. It's not yeah. like there's, it's not like there's some, okay, there's an overlap and we're not quite sure how much it, yeah. that, that, that's the thing that strikes me as so, as just so bizarre. I mean, you could take the, the 50,000th, like, okay, I, I don't have data on this, but I imagine you could take the 50,000th fastest man in the world and you might be, maybe 50,000 is too much. I mean, it can change the numbers. The 10,000th fastest man in the world, I'd imagine is faster than the fastest woman in the world, right? The 10,000th yeah. strong, 10, strongest man in the world is stronger than the strongest. And so that that's the thing. It's not even like it's, I don't know. It's, it's not even that it's, it's close. Like it's so black and white. Yeah, it's this failure to look, to appreciate just, I guess, the, the distribution of, of abilities. Mm. So a lot of these conversations that people have when they're arguing that we should be, you know, blowing up the women, uh, male and female sports and everyone should just compete, you know, in one big league that you somehow hear a lot now. Uh, they're confusing, you know, the overlap that exists at sort of the center of the distributions. So like everyone knows, like I know women who are faster than men. I know women who yeah, are yeah. faster than most men that I yeah, know. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, Extremely yeah. great athletes. And so, but they're looking sort of around that that area of substantial overlap. Mm. But yeah, but they don't tend to care that like okay, no, well, if we're talking about professional sports, we're not talking about this middle area of the overlap. We're talking about the extreme tail ends of this distribution. And if so, any even if like the the differences in means were very small, which they're not in a lot of these sports, but even if they were, uh, you still have. I mean, a, a small differences in the mean can still turn into to huge differences in representation at the extremes. Yeah. So, I mean, you get this for like height and basketball players and, you know, how fast you can throw. Uh, basically, almost any metric that you want to measure athletic performance on, you're going to have an overrepresentation of, of males at the extreme. Yeah. You know, and if, you, if everything were then just to be, except for people say that they want to, you know, all sports should maybe just be by weight classes. Mm. And then, well, if you did that, well, there's still a lot of overlap between males and females in weight. So the only weight classes that you would see females maybe competing in it would be like the most absolute lightest like 50 pounds or less and then like who i mean i guess i'd watch that but <laughs> but uh, you know just be like it would be males dominating every single weight class except for the very very lightest and even then there might just you might even have a male that just sneaks under there and will outlift yeah. them or outrun them or something well, one thing I just learned the the other day, I think this is true. Um, one of my Twitter followers was telling me because I, I tweeted something um, in relation to this, which is that um, I don't know in the UK, but they were actually saying in all the big leagues in America, they're not even um, sort of like, you know, the NBA, the NHL, the MLB, all of that. They're not actually formally male leagues. Right? Yeah, yeah. There's, no, there's no rule in there saying that women aren't allowed. It's yeah, they're open. Yeah, it's just that obviously if you take all the best... I mean that 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 in itself yeah. to, to someone yeah. who's there saying, "Oh, mm, I don't know, I don't know," you know, I, I know, you know, maybe that one woman like that's just like no, yeah. like you, you'll hear the argument that people will say that you know, well, males, females come in all shapes and sizes just like males do, so you know we need to get rid of these male and female categories. So I tweeted out once that says like something along the lines of you know if if male or females come in all shapes and sizes, quote unquote. 
then why isn't there has how come none has ever been of the shape or size that has been able to compete in MLB, NBA, NHL? It's like there's nothing yeah, there's there's nothing barring them from going in these leagues. Like if they can make the team, they can. And and of course, it's not there's not like sexism from these leagues. If there were some woman out there who's shooting three is like, yeah, yeah. like they they would get hired instantly. Like all they care about is winning. They're not gonna not gonna care about whether or not it's a it's a female on the team. No, no, no. So it's 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 madness. So where do you think this all goes, man? Yeah. So it's it's getting more insane right now. <laughs> and uh I think there's gonna be so I've I've sort of likened it to sort of like a predator prey dynamic system where uh where this sort of self-ID ideology, if you think of them as sort of like a, a rabbit population. So <laughs> they're beginning to spike now. This, they're going crazy. Uh, it's reaching a reaching peak, you know, peak trans is what people call it now. But then if you look at how the prey pop or how the predator population responds to like these increase in these prey populations, it's never coincident with the spike in prey. It's always the prey are gonna go up first. And then the predators are responding to the prey population. So the, the predator population will then spike, you know, a, a slightly lag time after the, the prey spike. And so I think that's kind of what we're seeing now. I think the prey being the gender idea ideology, that's beginning to spike right now. But I think uh, the, ideology, the ideology is sort of like a vampire in the sense that when it's exposed to light, it's, it's going to go away. And I think the, the Jessica Yaniv situation um getting i think the olympics when when we have more male athletes competing as females that'll shine a bunch of light on this ideology uh we're seeing it in high school athletes now where you know trans uh trans girls or you know biological males who aren't even required to take any hormones whatsoever mm-hmm. are competing in the smashing state records in the female category and the the vast majority of people think this is absurd like yeah if you were to just pull anyone and i mean well over 90 percent just clearly don't want this to happen mm-hmm. but a lot of people are just they're just working they're not they're not paying attention to the intricacies of what's going on in the gender debates and gender ideology and self-id uh but they're going to be forced to <laughs> pretty soon mm-hmm. if we have these yaniv cases in the olympics and so once these things are exposed i think that the prey population which i see as you know, you, me, and other people who are objecting to this, mm-hmm. uh, that's going to follow very shortly after. So I, I do, I can't imagine it getting crazier than it is now, but I said that several months ago. and it's been- <laughs> So the thing is as well, though, is um, I think there's going to be that challenge of rolling things back because pe- people never like to roll things back, right? So if yeah. they sort of create a law or a rule or an allowance which then allows, I don't know, allows certain people to compete in certain ways and whatever, then they're going to have a lot of issues just kind of drawing a hard line in the sand and going, oh, okay, look, we messed up. We're going to repeal this because that's when people are going to, you know, I don't think most people, right, but certain people are going to kick off. Like what's always, that's always the case, isn't it? Once you allow something, it becomes really hard to disallow it. Um, And it seems like, you know, they've just been giving in and giving in and giving in. And yeah. I don't know. I mean, my, my personal idea is I think we should sort of have a day where we all identify as women, um, as I did previously. And we all just, you know, 
Exactly. <laughs> I, think, I think we just, we just take it to its logical end conclusion, like really fast. Just a bunch of guys, I don't know, just go invade female changing rooms, female sports, female. <laughs> just, yeah. just have a bunch of guys in there. Just a day of identification. Just... Exactly. Just, just, just. Yeah. Take, push it to its logical thing. I think Donald Trump should identify as a woman and become the first, oh. um, <laughs> <laughs> become the first female American president. Cause, dude, yeah. that that'll be the checkmate, isn't? Surely that's the checkmate. Because if if trans women are women, <laughs> then if Donald Trump identifies, I mean, you can't say that he's not. Just grow that, grow the blonde hair out a little bit, get the orange tan going. <laughs> beautiful. Yeah, and it's 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 been. It's ridiculous what's going on. And well, the scariest part is that a lot of these changes to laws, you know, of like replacing sex related laws, like laws that were that acknowledge sex, like Title IX laws and, um, you know, the other any other laws on the books for who gets access to certain spaces and receives certain funds. These have in places like Canada. So a lot of these laws that we're looking at sex before are now replaced with gender ID. But these haven't been these laws haven't been changed by any sort of vote among the population. They've just been sort of changed. It is a sort of an, an admin thing at the top of the government officials just, you know, somehow just like changing the wording here from sex to gender ID, but they don't realize the, the enormous just like downstream effects that this has where maybe it's a good idea that we had a bunch of these laws that reflected biological sex and not gender ID, you know, like when we, maybe these were there for a reason and by just completely unearthing that just uh, just getting rid of the actual material basis of the, these laws these are going to have huge ramifications there's these uh these trophic cascades that are going to happen these these downstream effects and we're seeing these right now in the yaniv case and in the olympics and different sporting events and uh yeah wasn't there one, wasn't there one as well where um uh, uh... A man who had sexually assaulted some women, who a man who was in prison for sexual assault, identified as a woman and got transferred to an all-female prison, and then proceeded to sexually assault. I mean, when it's I hear fox in the fox in the hen house scenario, there. When time. I hear that kind of stuff, like my my jaw just drops. I'm just it's it's like <sighs> you need an adult. Like someone has to be the adult in the room and just be like, hold their arm and just be like, no, no this isn't no, this is this is insane. Like. A terrible Sorry. idea. This is the, this is literally no, the worst idea anybody has ever come up with. No, right? People just need to be able to say no. There's no adult. It's just you have the first graders who are in charge of like the kindergarten class now. And <laughs> uh, it's, it's, uh, it, it is weird, man. It is weird. I don't know. I, I yeah, I don't, it's, it's something I've ended up talking about quite a few times on the podcast. Weirdly, just because like every so many people are just. Wait, especially the kind of people I talk to on the podcast, right? I, I try to talk to people who haven't been uh, brainwashed, <laughs> shall, yeah. shall we say, by, by by certain ideology. And everyone's just, you know, very clearly, this thing's not not right. It's not going to it's not going to end well. Right? Yeah, I'm optimistic. I think I think we're the pushback is mounting. It might not like we might still get a little crazier before it starts to get better. But I do think that this the force of sort of the gender identity politics I think it, they're they are receiving some pushback. It's just going to take a little little bit longer before that pushback is actually going to be strong enough to actually turn it back the other direction. But I think it's mounting. I I really hope it's not crazier in ten years, but it could be. But I, I think hey, in the man. next ten years, I think a lot will revert, hopefully, back to somewhat normal, but not completely. I filled out a form. I filled out a form a couple of weeks ago, and I was able to self-identify my race. 
Oh, really? Yeah, race and ethnicity. It was um, yeah. It so there was there was gender, and then there was race slash ethnicity, and it had a little um, you know, it had an asterisk, and then at the bottom it had you know a little bit of an explanation. So for gender, it had. <laughs> Gender is not necessarily biological sex, but it's whatever you choose to identify as. And then I had like a few different examples and it had the same thing for race and ethnicity. And I'd never seen that on a form before. Like this is like a proper professional form. Right. And so it had um, race and ethnicity. No. Yeah. Ethnicity is not necessarily tied to skin color or nationality, but it's um, whatever you. So I I could have identified as a Native American woman. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Um, you're hearing Go about on website and look, look at how many grants are available for. Yeah. For, for but I mean, just identifying to that group. Yeah, I found I found that really interesting because that was I'd, I've seen it for gender before. Um, yeah. But that was the first time I'd seen it for race and ethnicity. And I was just like, this is really interesting. <laughs> this yeah. is another really interesting here. It's another area where people use the univariate fallacy as well as trying to say that there are just like no differences in populations. You know, even in the way people, you know, look in anything for different races at all. Like yeah. they try to say that this, these are just all social constructs as well. Yeah. And it's they fail they fail to take into account that it's the correlations among, you know, genes that are inherited together. that create like sort of the what we call like a family resemblance that we have. You know, like you're if you have a family, you know, you kind of look like your dad and you and your brothers and sisters all look alike. Yeah, yeah. You might not be able to say what is the one feature that makes us a family like that, you know, just by the way that we look, mm. but it's a, it's a bunch of different correlated traits. Like you have, you know, a similar nose structure, you have the similar eyes or something, and you can see this family resemblance. And then when you were talking about races or something or you know, ancestral populations, that's just a family resemblance on a population level. Yeah, yeah. But now they're trying to debunk that by saying that, you know, like there's not a single gene that you can't find in one population or another, which isn't completely true, but yeah, so it's the univariate fallacy comes back and just feeds yeah, into yeah. all these narratives about getting rid of binaries or destructing yeah. categories. The interesting thing with that is there's a much better argue, argument that that one is much more of a spectrum. Yeah, so it is more, that's, more of yeah, one, yeah. So that's the problem. It's like, well, if yeah. I'm like, well, if that one is a spectrum, then yeah. by, by that same logic, I mean, race, ethnicity, skin color, whatever word term someone, I mean, that, that one definitely is a spectrum because you can take yeah. some... You've got people who are like super pale, down, you know, albino, and then you've got, you know, the, exactly. the, dark, the darkest skin person. And you literally do have people of yeah. every single shade in there. And if you take someone from there and someone from there and they have children, then the children are going to be somewhere around the mi- halfway between them. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. in that one, it's like, yeah, I don't know. And then, of course, you've got the what about age? Right. I heard uh, I've heard people talking about trans age. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's I mean, trans- there, there's trans deaf people now too. I just saw deaf. Oh, people, people identifying as being deaf. Wow. And there was someone pushing back saying like, you guys aren't really deaf. Like, you know, these, I, wow. I don't know if they're actually like impairing their ears on purpose, but it was, I mean, it, it's hard to say if it was parody or not. I don't think it was. It seemed pretty sincere that there's people who are self, self identifying into the deaf community now. <laughs> wow. That is so weird. <laughs> That is so weird. The thing is, it's also, I mean, I'm not, I'd imagine if, if you were actually deaf and that was something that you, you know, have struggled with or had to deal with in your life, then that would actually be genuinely offensive. 
Yeah. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, like that would be genuinely, you're, you're like, okay, no, I, I actually can't hear. Yeah. And you're here being able to hear pretending yeah, that you're just pretending. Yeah. I, yeah. I said that I said that I, I identify as deaf fluid that I, I, I either hear or don't hear depending on, de- depending on my opinion of you or how, <laughs> how much I like you. Uh, that's funny, man. Um, so what have you got, uh, what have you got coming up next, Colin? You said you're applying for various jobs. Do you have any other projects or writing or anything else that you're working on? Yeah, I'm, I'm currently writing a sort of a, an essay length version of sort of my univariate fallacy thread. I have a collaborator on there. I'm not going to say who that is right now, but it's, it's probably someone you follow on, on Twitter. Um, that should be coming out hopefully in the next week or two. I've just had, a, I've just gotten back from the field recently. So I've, I've just been settling in and getting ready to sort of get more experiments going in the lab. So I'm trying to find time to just like dedicate to writing this thing. Mm-hmm. So hopefully you'll see that come out, uh, in the, in the relatively near future. Okay. But other than that, it's just job applications and I'm making rum actually for the first time ever. So I'll be doing that pretty soon. You're, you're making rum. I am. Yeah. It's okay. a new hobby. <laughs> That's not what I'm seeing in the background, is it? Nope. It's over there okay. on the other side. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> awesome, man. Well, I wish you good luck with that. Where's the article going to be published? Uh, so we've we've reached out to Quillette, and they they seem like they're receptive to taking it, but there's no guarantee that it's going to go there. But that's where we're shooting for, and I'd say it has a good good shot of going there. Um, we've talked to, to Claire uh, Lehman, and she seems like she's open to having that submitted there, so... Okay. We'll see. I'll let you know when that gets when that gets out. Yeah, wherever it out, happens to be, yeah. And uh, last for the listeners, where can they follow you online if they want to check out more of your thoughts and your words? So you can follow me on Twitter uh, at swipe right. So W R I G H T, and uh, that's basically where you'll find me. Awesome, Colin Wright. Thank you for joining us on the Real Talk with Zuby podcast. It's been a pleasure. Appreciate it. Thanks, Zuby. Take care. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.